Welcome to Christ the Center, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is now episode number 308. My name is Camden Busey. I'm the pastor of Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Grays Lake, Illinois. We've got a big panel for you today, but an exciting topic and an important one at that. Let's go around the horn and let me introduce to you everyone. We have Jared Oliphant, who is a regional coordinator at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He's working out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome back, Jared. It's great to have you again. Thanks, Camden. Good to be on. We're also welcoming back to the program David Filson, who is teaching pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church, a PCA congregation in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome back, David. Hey, thanks, Camden. Good to be here. Great. Uh, David's working on a PhD, uh, like I am. David and I are candidates, and we have another candidate with us at Westminster here, Jim Cassidy, who is the pastor of Calvary OPC in Ringo's, New Jersey. Welcome back, Jim. It's good to have you on again. As always, good to be here, Camden. Thanks. We'll have to see who can finish this race, and if somebody beats somebody else, well, <laughs> we're working through our uh, the PhD throws of things. So hopefully we'll be done uh, maybe in the spring, some of us at least, and we'll see what happens. It's a race uh, for survival, really. It is, really. It's, 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 yeah, exactly. See who, who doesn't die. It's more of a race of attrition than it is a <laughs> race of <laughs> anything else. We have someone here, uh, our guest, uh, has finished this race himself. <laughs> We have with us uh, today, welcome you back to the program, uh, Mark Jones, who is the Minister of Faith Presbyterian Church, a congregation of the PCA in Vancouver, British Columbia. He's also Research Associate in the Faculty of Theology at University of the Free State in Bloemfontein, South Africa. Welcome back, Mark. It's great to have you on again. Thank you very much for having me back on. I'm uh, always happy to chat with you guys and talk about theology since in Canada we don't tend to do that. (laughs) Well, in the United States we don't do that a whole lot either. That's what we're trying to do, bring people together that want to talk about these things. And uh, Last episode we had some Irish folks and uh, working in various parts of uh, the United Kingdom. And uh, today we're welcoming uh, someone working in Canada. So we're delighted to have another a mildly international panel to talk about a very important subject and a new book, Antinomianism, Reformed Theology's Unwelcome Guest, question mark. It's published by PNR Publishing. Uh, and Mark Jones has spent um, his efforts uh, bringing to us this very important book on, like I've said, a very important subject. We are going to open this up shortly, but before we do so, I do need to mention that Christ the Center is listener-supported. We here are a nonprofit organization, a 501c3 in the U.S., a reform forum that is, and we do rely on the generous support of all of our listeners to help us to do all of our work. Uh, we can love to produce and distribute all these programs free of charge and help uh, put good theology in people's hands. So visit us online today and help us to do this at reformedforum.org slash donate. We thank you so much for your support of everything we do at Reformed Forum and this particular program, Christ the Center. Well, I was so excited to see this book come out. I'm glad that I have a little advanced uh, digital copy. Uh, I've been reading through it, and I think this is such an important topic. Um, Mark, as we begin, I I want you to explain for our listeners how um, the current debates that we have over law and gospel and the role of justification in in the life of believers and also how that message is to be preached. Um. Can you explain for us um, how much of this is just um, coming from uh, many of the roots of the 17th century that you've studied? Um, Why is it um, that it is so important for us to understand the history of these debates if we're going to make any progress in the present discussion? 
Well, I think the uh, important um, fact that is really indisputable through church history is that uh, sometimes errors um, reappear and uh, we're not really aware of them because our knowledge of history is is not always adequate. So in the case of uh, antinomianism, it occurred to me that as I was studying Reformation and post-Reformation uh, thinkers and theologians, that when I would read modern-day treatments of certain topics, it uh, stood out to me as, as actually having more in common with antinomian thinking than with classical Reformed theology. And uh, it's so, it, it you know, to me, it, it was fairly obvious the kind of thought patterns and strains and emphases. But uh, today, it seems as though the what appeared to me to be obvious is not as obvious in the 21st century. One of the points that, that you make, again, there's so much that we can talk about, but I, I want to start off making sure we get to this point so we don't miss it later. Um, one of the quotes that you have in the book, you say, Bad Christology leads to bad or no application, a reformed understanding of Christ's person and work, not necessarily more imperatives, though they belong in our preaching, is the true solution to the problem of antinomianism. Um, how do you see those linked? Why is Christology so important for this discussion? And um, what are some of the gaps in the literature, either today or maybe even in the 17th century that you've seen, um, where we might uh, correct on that, on the, on the link? The, the topic of Christology... Uh, for me is so essential because of the way in which uh, many people today frame certain questions, uh, certain debates without adequately accounting for the person of Christ. And and clearly the person of Christ uh, in our understanding is far weaker today than his work. If you were to talk to candidates at Presbytery or even ministers about Christ's person or work, they'd probably be stronger in the area of his work, which um, I guess is, is something that I've experienced. I'm not sure about you guys, but uh, when it comes to certain questions that get raised, uh, so I can give one example. Uh, you've probably heard the phrase, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. Uh, the, that's, of course, true. God, God's aseity means he's in need of nothing, but that's not really the issue. Uh, it fails to take into account of whether Christ needs our good works and in what sense he needs our good works. Uh, he's the mediator and he is glorified in his people. The more they are holy, the more they are sanctified, the more Christ is glorified. And so when people set up the questions in terms of God versus, you know, God needing good works versus neighbor, it doesn't really get to the issue at stake. So, uh, that's why I try to bring into every chapter key Christological questions so that we're not just going over old territory. Would you be able to uh, make a connection then with the doctrine of union with Christ? How does our union then with the Christ, the Christ of Scripture in his entirety, including the entirety of his person and his work? Yeah, I think to me, the, the it's I don't have a chapter devoted to union with Christ. Rather, it sort of permeates the whole discussion on why Christ is so important. So uh, in one of the chapters, which we might talk about a little bit later, on um, the types of love that God can have for his elect, uh, whether he loves all of his elect in the same way, in what sense he does, in what sense he may not, uh, I try to talk about the fact that we first have to understand this in relation to Christ. Did, did God love Christ in the exact same way even during his own life? Or did Christ 
um, please his father more and more to different degrees uh, in his life. And when you look at those questions of first rooting all of these things in Christ, uh, you find that they have an obvious application then to believers because of our union with him. So to me, the the major issue is the way in which we understand union with Christ in the Christian life, not just as a mechanism for how we receive his benefits. Mm-hmm. Well, seeing then that, that important Christological focus and also that connection that we have to Christ, we'll come up uh, later on to talk about Historia and Ordo Salutis, impetration, and then application. But um, before we do so, let's lay a foundation a little bit about um, what it means to be antinomian. Um, there, there's obviously the simple definition, uh, perhaps uh, too simple, that it just means against God's law. How would you define antinomianism, and, and what breadth do we see even in the debates of the 17th century? Well, that's the, uh, I wouldn't say million-dollar question, because clearly nobody would be prepared to pay that much to definition. <laughs> Maybe it's the $12 question, <laughs> how much the book will be, uh, I hope. But, um, you know, most people, it's sort of the uh, etymology rules type thing where it, against God's law and people will say, well, I'm not against God's law. And uh, that's true to a degree that to be an antinomian, you you are in some way against God's law, but it's it's more of a sort of system of understanding. It's uh, it, it involves so many different elements, ways in which justification, how much it plays a role in the Christian life or how much it doesn't. Uh, you can look at it in terms of um, when people were justified. You can look at it in terms of uh, the role of the Spirit in the life of a believer. Uh, there's just w- so many different elements that permeate antinomian thinking that it's hard to really give a one or two sentence definition, but it clearly goes beyond just the idea that you're against God's law. As you explained it in the book here, Mark, then could you flesh out what it exactly uh, antinomianism is, particularly as you're trying to take it on here in this volume? Well, I think it's uh, it starts with a hermeneutical issue, and uh, I draw attention to the fact that uh, they have certain principles when they interpret the Bible. Uh, I think justification becomes so uh, incredibly uh, massive in terms of how they interpret the Bible that uh, you get to passages like, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes or Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And they immediately say, well, that's obviously justification. And so it starts at the hermeneutical level regarding how uh, pervasive justification by faith alone is in terms of their interpretation. And then it sort of morphs into Uh, certain ideas about whether God sees sin in the elect. And uh, one of the big trains of thought in the 17th century was that God doesn't see sin in the elect. And so if God doesn't see sin in the elect, our sins can't really do us any harm. Uh, We can't displease God or we can't even please God. There's a sort of we've been so absorbed into Christ that all he really sees is Christ. and, And so the Christian life is one which... Uh, really amounts to just making sure that uh, you trust that Christ has died for your sins. There's other uh, elements, of course, that in terms of assurance, uh, any idea that you can be assured of your salvation because of your obedience is is really 
not embraced by them. Uh, you could really go to almost every single doctrine and find that it's not quite the same as classical Reformed theology. And that's one of my points is that in any error in theology, once you make an error in one place that's significant, it really will just uh, happen in, in every other major place of theology. Mm-hmm. Mark, I was wondering um, if we can get even further back in the 17th century. Uh, Luther seems to play a dominant role in this whole discussion. Um, Luther himself and also just the trajectory afterwards in, in some Lutheran theologians, actually. Um, I was wondering if you can just kind of give us a, a brief synopsis of um, Luther himself, both early and later, um, his work against the antinomians, so how some people maybe um, took part of his teaching and ran with it. Um, that it he kind of touches on everything that we're going to be talking about, but I was wondering if we can set the context in the 16th century before we move on. Sure. Well, uh, with Luther, you, you have um, a, a figure who – wasn't entirely consistent in his thoughts throughout his life. I mean, he, he's dealing with a remarkable uh, period of time where Reformation is happening and, and the way in which he writes, his opponents, all of these different types of issues have to be taken into account. And what's interesting is that uh, the antinomians loved Luther. Uh, he was quoted by far in their writings more than any other reformer. And they didn't always adequately understand them. And Samuel Rutherford goes to great lengths in his spiritual antichrist to try and rescue Luther from the grips of the antinomians. But uh, maybe pre-1525, Luther does say things that uh, about God's law that really would um, confuse. And uh, for our ears, we would find almost appalling at times. And then he gets to 1539, where he writes uh, against the antinomians, and he's credited with actually coining the term antinomianism. Uh, you really see Luther uh, speaking a bit more clearly and, and judiciously about the role of God's law in the life of a Christian. And, and here's somebody who would pray the Ten Commandments. Here's someone who clearly tried to keep the Ten Commandments. He wasn't a, an antinomian, but uh, people have said, even very reliable scholars, that there are certain things in Luther's thought that might uh, have been in line with some of the elements of 17th century antinomianism, and that's why they loved him so much. But uh, I, I myself wouldn't call uh, Luther an antinomian, that's for sure. Right. So much depended on the historical context that he was dealing with, so that there was an emphasis based on what the church needed at the time, at the time yeah. right? Yeah, Absolutely. Mark, I'm curious, uh, when you get to the 17th century, and you have not just uh, the antinomians on the one hand, uh, Crisp, Saltmarsh, those kinds of guys who are at least in the orbit of antinomianism, but neonomianism as well, how do you think it's reactionary, and do you think there's a Christological uh, implication or tie-in for neonomianism as well? You know, for instance, Baxter and Owen's disagreement over atonement and that sort of thing. Yeah, well, the the first thing I I think is really important to point out is, uh, and even Bavinck gets this wrong in his analysis of the 17th century. He he uh, he calls Crisp and Saltmarsh and those antinomians. He calls them anti-neonomians. But uh, the problem was is that the term neonomianism was was coined in the 1690s by Isaac Chauncey to describe Baxter. 
Mm-hmm. So it's really a, a late, late, late 17th century term. But, you know, of course, the concept, just as any theological concept, can be present much more before the coining of the term. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have Baxter, whose famous hot peppercorn of obedience was uh, – sort of the, you know, just a, just a peppercorn of obedience would be sufficient for our justification, as small as it is, and he was just sneaking in even a peppercorn, uh, meant that he did, in fact, go into a neonomian direction where it was a sort of new law, that the law had been relaxed, and that uh, the ground of our justification uh, was, in fact, uh, our obedience. So, uh, Baxter, as brilliant as he was, and he was truly brilliant, uh, you know, I think he did compromise the doctrine of justification, but uh, that's a 1690s debate especially. Uh, mm-hmm. Baxter had, had obviously been been promoting his view, but um, it sort of becomes a, an 18th century debate in the, in the Marrow controversy and those types of things with neonomianism. What is um, uh, moving uh, further on down the line here? I, I think that the Morrow controversy is, uh, and you bring this up in your book, uh, really points up the issues. I think very clearly between uh, neonomianism and antinomianism. Would you be able to talk a little bit about the Morrow controversy and uh, how that points up the uh, the differences uh, that are going on in the Reformed Church at the time, particularly Church of Scotland? Well, the Marrow controversy is one of those controversies that nobody in their right mind ever wants to speak on unless they're defending the Marrow men with zeal because <laughs> uh, the way it's been received in, in terms of our own Presbyterian history is, is a clear sort of, you know, we must side with the Marrow men. Uh, the others were neonomians. Uh, it was, you know, this, this debate has been very clear from the beginning. And what I found trying not to necessarily buy into all of the scholarships so far is that it's a a little more complex than that, especially because of Edward Fisher's role in the 17th century, which many people don't look at the marrow in its 17th century context. They look at it in its 18th century context. And and there were Presbyterians like John Trapp who called Edward Fisher a sly antinomian. And, And not only that, but, you know, he, Edward Fisher had um, sort of an antinomian um, connections and background, and he wasn't the most sophisticated theologian. So his marrow is something that I would generally embrace, but I don't think it's as great a theological treatise as some make it out to be. And what's interesting is the great question in the 18th century is, um, must we uh, forsake sin in order to come to Christ? And the Church of Scotland sort of leaders at that time were, were saying yes, and it was the Marrow men who, who rejected that. And what's fascinating to me is that even someone like Herman Vitzius in the 17th century does speak about the fact that we must forsake sin in order to come to Christ. The way in which he highlights that keeps him from getting into Pelagianism or Neonomianism, but, you know, it's it's interesting the way some people describe the debate, they would actually end up um, calling people like Vitzius a heretic for affirming the concept of forsaking sin in order to come to Christ. So um, to me, it's tricky. It's it's. I don't give too much attention to it in the book, but uh, I think that the debate hasn't actually yet been really um, adequately sorted through. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's helpful. I mean, so many of the things that you work through uh, with historical theology just uh, drive home the point that this is obviously not a new topic, that um, we're not supposed to be just focusing on blog posts and, and things that are bandied about regarding the topic. Um, but moving on a little bit, at least temporarily, in this conversation from historical theology, I wanted to talk about um, just the broader concept of holiness. And you you helpfully distinguish between God's holiness, Christ's holiness, and our holiness, um, and also touch on the work of the Holy Spirit as it's a it's a whole Trinitarian work that's going on there. Um, can you summarize what what you want to communicate in the book regarding um, those different aspects of holiness? Sure. the uh, The point that I make in I, I think it's uh, chapter two, the imitation of Christ, is to talk about holiness. We can. We can talk about God in his, his holiness, and, and we must be holy because God is holy. But um, what uh, John Owen notes is that uh, God's holiness is not actually the immediate ground or uh, motive uh, for our holiness, but it's actually the holiness of God as revealed to us in Christ that is the immediate ground and motive for our holiness. And uh, we don't see this is the one of the major points I'm trying to keep pushing in the book is we don't relate to God directly. Uh, we, we can't have unmediated access to God. And so if we're to relate to him simply in terms of his holiness, uh, we'd die. It, we just can't, it would be impossible for us. So we relate to God in, in the face of Christ, in his holiness. And our union with him means that in the way that he is made holy, we are made holy, and there's a correlation there. And so um, the imitation of Christ has been ridiculed by some, but it actually has a quite a um, prestigious um, history among Reformed Orthodox theologians. Now, in terms of the role of the law um, in our sanctification, uh, is it fair to say, or is it accurate to say, biblical to say, that the law is a means of our sanctification? Yeah, the, the point that uh, you find Rutherford making, that he's arguing against the antinomians, and the question is, uh, people raise, it's either law or it's grace in terms of our sanctification. The law can't uh, make us holy. Uh, only grace can. And, and in a sense, of course, that's true. The law can't impart the life that it promises. But that doesn't really get to the issue that I'm trying to address uh, the issue that I'm trying to address is, is, um, is the law an instrument of sanctification and not the instrument as though there were no other instrument, but is it still nevertheless an instrument of sanctification? And, and the, the point that the Reformed divines made is that it absolutely it is an instrument of our holiness, that it, it isn't obstructing our holiness, but is a means by which we become holy. And so just as the Holy Spirit, just as faith uh, is an instrument in our sanctification, so the law is as well. You note in your book that Thomas Shepard you know, spoke of the antinomians in his day, and he, and he said that they conflated justification and sanctification, so that sanctification is simply believing the gospel more and more. And we find that today, I think there was a Four Views on Sanctification book, and, and a guy named Gerhard Forda presented a Lutheran view, and, and this pops up now and again, where sanctification is simply just the art of getting used to your justification, or looking back to your justification more and more. What are the pastoral implications of such a view? 
Well, the um, I think that as strange as it may sound, and I, I'm not even sure how this is going to come up myself because I'm on the fly now, but uh, in in one sense, the sort of um, believing your justification more and more uh, can actually become a type of legalism in a way because it's sort of your salvation then becomes about, well, um, I just need to believe this more and more. But what happens if you don't believe that more and more? Uh, if you just have that as your only real ground, then you're really hedging a lot on one thing. And it, it, it what it t- attempts to do is to say, okay, we need to leave ourselves and go to Christ, but still, you're still saying you have to believe more and more. And even um, that saying, there needs to be an increase in your faith. And so what ends up happening is that, you know, if your faith isn't believing that more and more, then what do you do? And mm-hmm. so the chapter I have on assurance, for example, I go into how multifaceted the the area of assurance is so that we're not just left with one uh, realm in which to live, but several. Mm-hmm. Do you find this related to the notion that justification is strictly identified with the gospel or vice versa, that the gospel is justification? That's what it is entirely. Yeah, I think if you get some of the... Um, well, some of the persons I've heard talk on this, if you get them sitting down in a calm, collected atmosphere, uh, they'll say, of course, the, the gospel is more than uh, justification. But I think what ends up happening is that people will admit that, but then in their preaching or in the rhetoric, of it essentially becomes uh, synonymous with, uh, so they'll affirm sanctification, but really the way in which they describe sanctification is just justification. So uh, what they affirm theologically, practically doesn't seem to be the case. Mm. You know, so what's what's the issue here? Because you obviously we, we point out that, you know, Orthodox theologians today and even the, the antinomians, when they're looking at the the role of good works, for instance, in justification, both sides would deny entirely, flatly, you know, unequivocally, that your good works play no role in your justification. They don't merit your position with God or, or don't purchase or, or don't earn you your standing before God. That's strictly on the grounds of Christ's righteousness, imputed righteousness of Christ. So what is then the point of contention in terms of how the law and the gospel relate on this particular issue? There's a there's a quote in my book. I talk about good works and rewards. And um, while in the initial um, what has been called the period of establishment, uh, the efficacy of works are included uh, excluded uh, in our justification. Everyone agrees on that, I, and I think you know that's not really even debated in other traditions. It's rare to find even Roman Catholics saying yeah. that, but. Um, the issue then becomes uh, in the period of continuation, according to Van Maastricht, uh, he says there's no efficacy of good works granted for justification, but the presence is required. And then uh, what some would, I think, find pretty shocking is uh, the period of consummation, which uh, where eternal life is granted uh, to believers that uh, not only is the presence of good works required, but their efficacy, in a certain sense, their efficacy uh, plays a role in how we um, enter through eternal life. So 
Um, that's a pretty strong doctrine of the necessity of good works for salvation. And uh, some speak about good works as merely evidence of faith, whereas I think the majority of Reformed theologians have talked about good works in much stronger language and their necessity than they do uh, today. Mark, do you think there's a connection between uh, Van Maastricht there on the, the necessary presence of good works and Jonathan Edwards uh, later uh, with his doctrine of causal and non-causal conditionality, you know, the, the necessary but non-causal conditionality of evangelical obedience for, uh, for justification? Yeah, that sounds, uh, it's been a while since I read Edwards carefully on that, so you would know better than I would for sure, but I think that uh, you know, the, the point, of course, is, is it's not just saying, well, you know, we're saved by faith and works, whatever we do is, is just simply a sort of thank you to God for doing such a great thing. Uh, that's, uh, you know, the sort of um, guilt, grace, gratitude, sort of, some can understand the gratitude in a sort of, well, it, it's not really... Uh, that necessary, but hey, if you really believe your justification, you're going to do good works anyway. It's it's much stronger than that, and I think does far more justice to the the scripture where um, we're really left with no choice but to do good works. They're the way in which God has appointed us to salvation, and there isn't mm-hmm. another way you can go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mark, um, I want to get into. Uh, the the phrase law and gospel hermeneutic um and whether that's appropriate to use and what that can even mean but um before we do that can you know we touched on the the justification sanctification union with christ issue can we talk a little bit about how um redemption accomplished and, and redemption applied is distinguished and also how impetration and application relate to it because i think it's important to to lay out what we mean by the gospel and then go from there to see maybe how the law fits into that overall structure yeah, okay. The, um, the, the word impetration, uh, I, most people just don't even know what it means. They certainly don't use it today. It's, it's a 17th century word. It, you can find it in John Owen. Uh, and that has to do with Christ's mediatorial work, what we would call sort of his, his um, whether his active and passive obedience or his satisfaction on the cross, whatever, whatever Christ did on earth. Uh, as our mediator are his works of impetration. Uh, but there's also his works that he continues to do as mediator in terms of application. And what ends up happening is that um, the gospel, uh, in terms of how it's understood, is exclusively understood as impetration. And while that is the basis and foundation of the gospel, uh, the gospel isn't simply limited to impetration, but also application as well. And we would say, um, you know, redemptive, uh, redemptive history uh, is, is one way of looking at things. But I, I use impetration and application just because it's more 17th century, whereas that's a um, 20th century phrase, but essentially the same ideas. So uh, they kind of, uh, the antinomians focus exclusively on impetration and don't make enough of application. But in my view, that you, you, you actually, with one, you need the other. There's no way you can um, distinguish the two in a sense where uh, one's optional. One leads to the gospel, and one is the gospel. 
we find that popping back up all mm-hmm. over the place, and and not just in the present day, but in the historical debates about eternal justification and those types of things. There seems to be a perpetual <laughs> confusion of the impetration application, or in another facet, the historia salutis, ordo salutis, and when we don't have that those categories in our minds, we really start to confuse uh, the gospel and start to say some pretty odd things. Yeah, and just to piggyback, you'll hear rhetoric like, uh, Jesus did everything so you don't have to do anything. I mean, it's not quite that um, explicit, even though sometimes it may be. But um, is that one example of mixing categories there? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I would say it's just a sort of exclusive focus on impetration or redemption accomplished uh, and, and, and not really uh, giving justice and ultimately not giving justice to Christ's continuing work. You know, it's, it's, you can set it up as it's either what Christ has done or what we do, but, uh, you know, Reformed theology has never really um, put it that way. It's what Christ has done. Uh, in his works of impetration and what Christ continues to do in his people in his works of application. And uh, when you phrase it that way, you know, you're, you're doing more justice to reform theology in terms of ongoing gospel work in the life of the church. Mm-hmm. Now, you've mentioned uh, the, this idea that good works are necessary. That's, that's something we need to be very careful or clear about what we what we or, or you mean when we say those sorts of things. In what sense are good works necessary? What's the scope of that statement, and um, why is it important to get that right? This is a question that uh, people who uh, have read Francis Turton, because he's been made available in, in English to the vast majority of, of readers today uh, who are interested in this topic, they'll know that um, he addresses this question, are good works uh, necessary for salvation? And he affirms that that is indeed the case. So, you know, you have a um, Turretin making that plain, but then the, the question is, is that sort of a one-off or is that fairly um, common among Reformed theologians? And so chapter 5, I think, is where I discuss good works and their necessity. And uh, this comes back even to... Roman Catholic Protestant polemics where um, you have John Davenant, who was really one of the finest uh, theological minds of his time, uh, addressing this question because he had to deal with um, listening to uh, Bellarmine and Cardinal Bellarmine from the Roman Catholic uh, Church had said that, um, you know, for Protestants, uh, good works are just merely evidence of salvation, of justification. And Davenant actually rejects that caricature. Uh, There's one uh, historical theologian in a book that I was reading from a seminary uh, today who who actually agrees with Bellarmine's understanding of Protestants on good works. But Davenant's whole treatise is to say, no, no, um, these good works are uh, necessary for salvation even if they are not necessary for initial justification. So they make the distinction between initial justification and salvation. And then Davenant, for example, would say that good works are necessary to the salvation of the justified by a necessity of order, not of causality. Or uh, another way would be they're the way that God has appointed to eternal life, not as the meritorious cause of eternal life. So they're the way in which we 
um, enter eternal life, but they're not the meritorious cause of eternal life. So they're, they're very clear on affirming the necessity of good works, but in also rejecting their meritorious nature. So they use the, um, the expression, the way of salvation. Could you explain, uh, just piggybacking off of what you've already said, uh, what they mean by the word way there and what they don't mean by the word way? There's, a, there's an interesting phrase off the top of my head. Uh, it's Westminster uh, Larger Catechism. I think it's 32, but uh, there's a sort of um, way in which we can look at this as our good works simply the way of life, and that's just how um, Christians walk in good works because we've been made holy, or are they the way to good life? And the uh, it was Crisp, Tobias Crisp, who denied that good works were necess- necessary for eternal salvation. He called it a received conceit among many persons. But uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism talks about uh, good works being as as the way to salvation. And uh, Vitius as well um, talks about the practice of Christian piety is the way to life because thereby we go to the possession of the right obtained by Christ. Um, so, uh, you know, that's just very common that our works, uh, which the Spirit of Christ works in us, uh, contribute something to the latter. And what he means by that is the possession of life, uh, whereas the right to life is something that is by Christ alone, but the possession of life is something which our good works contribute to. And that's in keeping with Van Maastricht, Davenant, and even Anthony Burgess as well. Mm-hmm. Now, the one verse that's often brought up is a verse in Isaiah about our, our filthy rags. And that's usually brought out to say that, no, even our good works, our best works that are done, um, God does not accept and he's not pleased with them. What is that verse referring to and how does that um, play a role in this present conversation? Uh, Filthy rags, uh, menstrual cloth, however you want to interpret it, Mm pollutes. And, uh, you know, from Isaiah 64, 6 was a favorite uh, verse of the antinomians. And uh, Vitzius, for example, uh, he actually claims that the good works of the saints are not intended by Isaiah, Isaiah's language. Uh, so he actually rejects that Isaiah is talking about good works. And if you look at the, the context of what the Israelites are doing, um, Isaiah is not chastising them for uh, loving their neighbor and um, praying with clean hands to God. Uh, so it's not as if um, Isaiah is looking at these people actually doing righteous things and saying they're menstrual cloth. Now, even our good works, if we're to stand in the court of justification, exactly. clearly are insufficient. But uh, that's a case where do you then read justification into the whole Christian life or or do you allow that there is a sense in which our good works may be called good works and pleasing uh, to God? And the Reformed theologians were very, very clear on this, that um, we really can please God with our good works, that he accepts them because we are in Christ now and uh, even rewards them far beyond what those uh, works could ever merit. If it was a case of merit, we would we would just merit eternal death. Precisely. So... 
Um, that's not uh, anywhere where I've found Reformed theologians in strong disagreements, and I've never been afraid to say, hey, they disagree on this topic. There's a, you know, I edited a book where I listed all of the disagreements that I knew of in the 17th century, but this is just one where it's, it's very clear. Yeah, and it's even the work of the Spirit to work these things in and through us. We can come back to Philippians 2, 13 and 14 in a little while, but um, if the Lord is working in and through us to do the good works— um, is he displeased with his own work? You know, so that's a question that we need to ask ourselves. And of course, it's not in the court of justification in which we make these statements. Um, Mark, can you talk to us a little bit about uh, the distinctions of God's love? You know, back in the debate between uh, Baxter and Owen, for instance, methodologically for Owen, uh, very Trinitarian, very focused on the covenant of redemption in his uh, debate with, with Baxter and God's uh, Trinitarian Acts, both at intra and, and those at extra. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about um, you know God's you know Trinitarian love, his uh, at intra in a Trinitarian love, his at extra voluntary love for his creatures, uh, love of benevolence, uh, beneficence, etc. You know, to keep it fairly simple, uh, I do discuss all of that in the book. But one of the ways in which I try to set up the question is whether. Does God love everybody who's ever existed in the same way? And, and I think everyone who's remotely reformed or claims to be would say, well, of course not, because some are elect, some are not. But then it gets a little more tricky in terms of God's love towards the elect. Because Does God love the elect in exactly the same way? And when it comes to God's love of benevolence um, in terms of election, predestination, uh, clearly Everybody who's elected is elected. There's no one who's elected more than somebody else uh, in terms of people, apart from Christ, of course. And then there's his love of beneficence, which uh, where he redeems his people. And so when Christ died on the cross, he didn't die for some of his elect more than the others. It's the same love. And that's um, foundational and basic to our understanding of God's love. But then there's a further distinction between God's love of benevolence or beneficence and his love of complacency and uh, some people imagine that this was something that jonathan edwards had uh invented but you know he's using a reformed scholastic category uh, and that has to do with the fact does does god love um, some of his elect more than others and uh can people who take god for granted who are christians and who do not love him as much or pray to him as much or commune with as much, say that they have as much love between them and God as the person who does. And this is something Samuel Rutherford um, uh, addresses. He says, you know, when a justified person swears, kills the innocent, denies the Lord Jesus as Peter did, um, and somebody uh, prays and believes and trusts God, can we say that there is any difference in God's love towards them? Well, in the level of uh, benevolence, no, but in the level of complacency, yes. And uh, mm -hmm. it was it was John Gill who actually rejected this distinction, but it, it, it actually is a rich, reformed pedigree. Uh, and one of the most important things I think that I do uh, in this book, because I haven't actually found this in any writer yet, which is a little bit worrying to me, but I actually locate God's love of benevolence and complacency in Christ himself and then work from that principle. So 
a lot of people look at Luke 2.52 and they use that as a text for um, arguing against Lutheran or Roman Catholic Christology, saying that Jesus grew in wisdom and in knowledge. But it also says that he grew in favor with God and man. And so how does Christ grow in favor? Uh, wasn't he always beloved? Wasn't he always the elect one? Wasn't he always uh, the apple of his father's eye? How can he grow in favor? Is that just metaphorical? And my point is that Christ's um, relationship in terms of complacency with his father was something that uh, grew, and, and so can ours. Mm-hmm. I think those distinctions are so important, um, as well as really applying them to um, what's going on today. And, um, you know, I think it's important just to kind of um, be aware of what people are talking about, what books are out there, even what articles are being written that that seem to get some exposure. I'll start off by saying that um, recently I I caught a clip. It was on MSNBC and uh, Tolian Chavidjan was on there and he was explaining um, his book One Way Love that just came out. And uh, I want to say uh, in all sincerity and, and being completely genuine that I was really happy that, that he was on. Um, that may surprise some, but I was because he, what he was saying was better than 99% of the stuff that people on MSNBC hear when it comes to either theology or religion or whatever. So I think it's important to just set a context for um, discussing these things, especially with particular individuals. But I do want to bring up um, Tolian specifically because a, a lot of his rhetoric is just right at the heart of, of what we're discussing. And so um, we had discussed, particularly with Mark, uh, Tolian's book, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. And um, I want to bring up just in general how that book relates to what we've been talking about now. Um, what are some of the things, Mark, that, that you reference in this book, Antinomianism, that you found maybe less than helpful and could use some modification uh, how, how should we sort out what Tolian is trying to do in that work? And I think in, in his blog and in overall works as well. Uh, as you guys probably understand, the um, publishers, this, this book uh, uh, has taken longer to, to publish than it did to write. Uh, and that's just the nature of publishing. So uh, I only have uh, in, in this particular book we're discussing, Tolian's uh, book Jesus plus nothing equals everything as something that I'm interacting with. I, I certainly would have liked to have also interacted with, uh, I think the latest one, one way love or whatever it's called. Uh, because I think that, you know, there's plenty in there that also would, would fit within my critique of what I think is modern day antinomianism. And, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, it's a case of, uh, what he's trying to address is a problem, but, in addressing the problem, he's making all sorts of claims and statements that, that really are uh, historically considered much more in common with antinomian thought. Uh, and they don't, the books don't really have the framework to, t- to, to, to deal with um, types of love in God. It's sort of God loves you and don't ever doubt that trust in Christ's finished work and there's nothing you can do to to have that decrease. And, and in one sense, it's true. And then in another sense, he's not dealing with the fact in which that's a false statement. So, um, you know, the, the works are, they're meant for a popular readership, but they're, they're so um, painful in places theologically that I, I had felt like I actually had to draw attention to them as, as much as that will probably get me in trouble with a few people. <laughs> 
Well, just to just to follow up, I'll just give a specific so people may know what we're talking about. He wrote an article recently, and um, I just pulled a couple quotes. So, um, granted, it's a little bit out of context, but I just I, I can't read the whole thing here. But he says, um, when it comes to real heart change, we have two options: law or grace. That's it. Two. At the end of the day, we either believe law changes or love does. The law can inform us of our sin, but it cannot transform the sinner. The law can instruct, but only grace can inspire. Or to put it another way, love inspires what the law demands. I'm wondering, we already touched on some of the pastoral implications, but when when you limit um, ministers of the gospel to basically just one thing that they can say to the people that, that may manifest in some various ways, um, what does that do for people in the pew? And, and um, how does that relate to, I know you read this, so the... He, he makes a distinction between reasons for change and motivations for change. Is, is that actually a distinction or is it just semantics? Um, what, what's going on there in the article that, that we both read? Yeah, the, it was interesting that several people, friends of mine, pointed out the, the distinction between reason and motivation, which I even think uh, he claims is etched in the reformers uh, in the article. I'd have to go back and, and check that. But I was thinking, wow, I, I obviously haven't read these guys very well because I've never heard of this distinction before. And it seems like a distinction without a difference. Uh, and one of the reasons I think it works for him is the way he sets it up. But if God um, threatens believers and promises believers, uh, we could look at it that way, but I don't know if he'd have room for gospel threatenings as well as uh, I think gospel promises he would affirm, but gospel threatenings, which is 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 in the canons of Dort and in the Westminster Confession. But um, if we talk about fear of punishment and hope of rewards, which is something I address in the book, um, one of the reasons I obey is because I don't want to be punished or chastised. And one of the reasons I obey is because God rewards obedience. Now, my motivation is I obey because I don't want to be punished or chastised, and I obey because God rewards obedience. I mean, it's the same thing. It's a distinction without a difference. So uh, I think that they're so intimately connected reasons and motivations that it only works if you set it up in a certain way, but um, clearly doesn't work when you address all of our Christian theology. And there were other things about the law and what it does. But, you know, I would have a very different understanding of the law. I think the confession is clear. The Bible is clear that the the law of God motivates. It motivates in the preface, which reminds us of the tender mercy of God. Uh, it motivates in the promises, uh, showing us the glorious life and blessedness of those who seek to do his will. It motivates us in the threatening, uh, showing us what our sins deserve and what might happen if we do choose a certain course of action. And it motivates us in what Christ has done for us by being our perfect law keeper. I mean, the law of God um, has reasons and motivations that are positive as well as negative. And uh, in Westminster Confession 19.6, it's interesting that uh, the divines make the statement that when a man does good and refrains from evil simply because the law encourages us to do that, is not an evidence of him being under the law, but actually under grace. So when we obey the law for the law's sake, that's a sign that we're a Christian. Mm. So those are some of the areas where I think, you know, he, he, he's, it's, he's not really doing justice to the scriptures, to our confessional tradition, and, and really it's, it's a distinction without any difference in my view. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, um, right after the 
consummative section on on Christology or Pauline Christology in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, you have, as you'd expect, verses 12 and 13. Uh, But those are important verses that speak to the work of God in our lives, uh, working out this pattern that moves from suffering unto glory or exaltation. And uh, we're given, I think, a very helpful model for understanding sanctification. It's a model that Dr. Gaffin speaks about in his book, By Faith, Not By Sight, which also will be coming out in a second edition from the same publisher here, PNR Publishing. And uh, yeah, exactly. And Mark has written the forward for that, so we'll we'll whet the appetite on that one. Um, but that model here is one of concursus. It's not that God does ninety nine percent of sanctification; we do one percent. It's not that God does a hundred percent of sanctification; we do zero. Or the flip: it's God does a hundred percent, and we do a hundred percent in terms of this working out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But what we have here in in Jesus plus nothing equals everything, page 95, also mentioned here in Mark's book on page 116, on the exegesis of Philippians 2, 12 through 13, Tullian Chavidjan says this, We've got work to do, but what exactly is it? Get better? Try harder? Pray more? Get more involved in church? Read the Bible longer? What precisely is Paul exhorting us to do? Those are good questions. But then uh, Chavidjan answers this way, God works his work in you, which is the work already accomplished by Christ. Our hard work, therefore, means coming to a greater understanding of his work. Now, that's a particular view of sanctification that we've seen before. I don't know the the reasons and all the the motivation for uh, Tullian's espousing such a view, but I'm wondering, Mark, if you could speak to this and, and also some of the the threads of where this kind of view comes from, because many of us have seen this in the sonship theology that rose up in the early 90s, particularly in New Life churches. I'm wondering if you've seen similar connections or have any similar thoughts on this particular brand of sanctification. Yeah, definitely with sonship. uh, You know, I know it's morphed and changed over the years, but it's certainly ideas that sonship um, proponents would would put forward, uh, you know, what, what, even in the phrase that you quoted, um, you know, our work is coming to a greater understanding of his work. Um, you know, what that ends up doing is it makes faith really intellectualistic. It's sort of the notitia, uh, of faith. The knowledge of faith takes on this life of its own, but the trust, um, needs to be there as well as the ascent and the life of faith. It's sort of like, you know, um, if we just sit in a room with a big, big book on systematic theology written by Forde or some, uh, Lutheran, we'll be able to really have a good Christian life. And, and to me, that's just uh, crazy. But it's also crazy because of everything Paul's saying in in that verse. Uh, really, um, you know, he's saying, do we need to do more, try harder? And and actually, the Bible says, yeah, you do. <laughs> uh, it's a place. <laughs> You know, it's it's there's plenty of things where Paul's exhorting people to do better. Uh, and I was just preaching on Genesis four this past Sunday, and it comes to Abel and Cain, and and God says to Cain, uh, "If you do well, will you not be accepted?" And I made the point: how many people would ever admit to that as good theology? Uh, if you do well, will you not be accepted? I, I just can't imagine that type of language finding a place in much reformed contemporary theology today. 
Yeah, I think that's right. There's a, I should just mention real quickly, there's a forward by J.A. Packer. He has a number of quotes that are just brilliant. But um, one that kind of relates to this, I found, is he says, Antinomians among the Reformed have always seen themselves as reacting in the name of free grace against a hangover of legalistic works-based bondage in personal discipleship. And I think um, much of these conversations can be understood maybe in a personal conversation where some authors come from a very legalistic, um, moralistic, uh, broadly evangelical type of background and um, maybe see everyone out there just, you know, um, as that from from where they came from. Uh, and so there's, I think there's some validity in being anti-legalistic, uh, but you know, I think we're trying to deal with like the overcorrection of going way over on the other side, right? Yeah, and I, one of the chapters I do is it's not a chapter on theology so much like the um, other chapters. There's right. historical, there's systematic theology, there's you know, but there's a chapter on rhetoric yeah. that's really important. Is the rhetoric that's used. Uh, you know, legalism is really, really bad, and I hope you know if, if there'll, there'll be a book written on legalism. It, it, it's it's a terrible, terrible error, um, and I don't think it's wise to say which is the worst error. Um, okay, legalism's worse, so let's err on the side of antinomianism. That type of thinking is just plain wrong. Um, but you know what you find with antinomians and their rhetoric. Uh, even Rutherford makes the point that the antinomians write book after book of Christ. And, and for all their crying, oh, the gospel spirit, the gospel strain of preaching, the mystery of free grace, um, he basically says that they're, they're not actually doing justice to uh, the person of Jesus Christ for all of their advocation of him. So, um, you know, just because somebody says grace a lot and talks about Jesus a lot doesn't actually necessarily mean that they are um, speaking about the grace of God in the way that the, the Bible does. So mm-hmm. I try to bring out the, the nature of rhetoric uh, in the last chapter as something really important for us to consider today. Because who wants to ever criticize somebody who says, I just want to preach the free grace of Jesus Christ? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> makes it a little difficult. Yeah. yeah. Mark, I'm curious, you know, I have um, in my circles in the PCA, some, some will use the rhetoric of the grace guys or the grace boys. And by implication, I guess those who, who have any critique or any hesitation about certain aspects of sonship or even Tullian's uh, theology are by implication, not grace guys or not grace boys. And and obviously that rhetoric is, is paper thin. And I think it's important, as Jared did earlier, you know, to express our, our thankfulness for a brother like Tullian. But at the same time, am I being simplistic to suggest that a helpful corrective, not exclusively, but, but helpful, would be if we return to our tradition, things like book three of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. You know, a lot of folks will read Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And that that becomes so novel or um, paradigm shifting for them when in reality what we need is is the corrective of mortification, vivification, and all of that done in a pneumatological and union with Christ context uh, as in book three. Yeah, I mean, uh, to me, you know, I never mention Calvin really ever in my preaching. I don't don't use even fancy theological terms. I try to get the concepts drilled into people and— and, you know, you look at uh, how do we correct, and it's a question that's often asked to me, how do you correct? What about someone who's so introspective? And and there are no easy solutions, you know. It, it, you can't just 
have these cute phrases about believing your justification more and more. Uh, it really, you know, I think if we understand the, the Christian ministry is where the real work is done, not at conferences, right. even even books, you know. They're Twitter. Helping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Facebook. But, you know, dealing with people over years and years of faithful Christian ministry and teaching them over sustained periods of time, that's the only real solution in my mm-hmm. To these problems, uh, I'm, I feel like I do need to address it publicly in a book, but my hope is that pastors are going to read this book and then be able to sort of um, give the Christological corrective to this problem, uh, not just say, oh, yeah, I better preach a sermon with a bit more uh, on the law next week, and that'll balance me out. That doesn't really ever balance someone out. So um, you've got to get to the sort of root of the problem before you can deal with the sort of offsprings of that uh, issue. Mm-hmm. So that's my, you know, what, how I think through the issue. I think it's a helpful pastoral perspective um, that really <laughs> sees people as as holes, and you and you, I mean, w h o l e s, and that we have to address them and uh, and uh, preach messages that deal with their entire lives. And um, it can't necessarily be condensed to a motto um, other than, you know, it is Christ who is your salvation. And it's the Spirit who applies Christ to you in his full-orbed being. All that he is for you is is significant, not just one aspect. Uh, Mark, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. I want to thank you for writing this book, and I thank you so much for for what you've done and uh, for joining us today to speak about it because I think this is such an important issue for the church, and I thank you for your willingness to write and to speak. Yeah, yeah thank you so much. Yes. Again, the book is titled Antinomianism, Reformed Theology's Unwelcome Guest, question mark, published by PNR Publishing. Uh, it's going to be available soon. Uh, seeing when this episode will be released uh, may or may not be out already. I believe it will be. And if so, you know, you can check places out like WTSbooks.com to get a very good price on this book from PNR. We thank them for what they're doing. Also look forward to By Faith, Not By Sight by Dr. Richard B. Gaffin, Jr., with a foreword um, by Mark Jones and a future discussion on Christ the Center for that as well. Uh, you can find out uh, all of the news and info that you want about Reformed Forum as well as our upcoming uh, guests and topics at reformedforum.org. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at Reformed Forum or email us through the contact page on the website. We want to thank everybody for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.